Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Today I have an episode with the lovely Tony Gonzalez. She is a PhD candidate at UCSB and it was such a pleasure to have her on the podcast today. As it is with all of my guests, I'm so lucky that I've had so many cool people on the podcast and I'm really glad to hear that you guys are responding to all of these cool people that I've been having on. I want to give a big, big, big thank you to all of our new listeners. The podcast has really grown a lot in the past two months, and I'm just so appreciative and really glad that the content is resonating with people. So on that note, I wanted to give a shout out to two of our most dedicated listeners, uh, Melissa and Alice. Alice, I think, is probably one of our youngest listeners. She's a seventh grader. And she also wants to be a forensic anthropologist. I got to socially distance meet her the other day and talk. As we all know, I love to talk about bones. So it was so fun. We got to talk all things bones and forensic anthropology. So thank you, Melissa and Alice and your whole family. I know Drake and Liam also listen. Thank you guys so much for listening to our episodes. And I also want to give another big thank you to everyone that's followed us on the at that anthro podcast Instagram. I know you guys really like seeing behind the scenes content. I know I love seeing behind the scenes content of other podcasts that I listen to. So I like to post pictures of people working in the field or in the lab or just of them. So you can kind of see the face of the person on the podcast since it is just audio. So if you guys aren't following the Instagram, definitely go check it out. I think you will enjoy it. And um, I just wanted to say, you know, big happy holidays to everyone, you know, no no matter what you celebrate. Um, I personally celebrate Christmas with my family and it's been, you know, a different Christmas this year, but still nice to be at home in Ventura with the Christmas tree and Daisy and watching lots of Christmas movies. So that's been great. One of the last things I wanted to mention was if you want to give help the podcast out, help us grow, recommend us to other people. If you could go to the either on iTunes or the podcast app on your iPhone or uh, Mac computer, I know it is different for people that are on Androids. I'm not sure if it's an actual app, but you can go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating and review. It means a lot. It really helps recommend the podcast to new listeners on the platform. 
So that would, especially if you're enjoying it or if you have something you want to say to me, I read all the reviews so you can tell me maybe what your favorite episode has been or your favorite part or something or a guest you want to hear in the future. I would love that. And the very last thing before we get into this episode is that there will be an episode next week on the 30th, but there will be no episode on January 6th, so in two weeks. And the reason for that is it's the start of the new year. I wanted all of my people and my guests to enjoy their holiday season, and I didn't want to be bothering anyone. So I've backlogged some episodes up until then, but I'm going to take the week off to reach out to some new guests, um, some people outside of UCSB. Pretty exciting. And also get ready for the new quarter of school. I'm going to be starting work again, so it'll be good. Just to, we're all going to have a reset in the new year, but I will be back with a brand new episode, like I said, next week, December 30th and January 13th. So without further ado, let's hear from Tony Gonzalez. Hi, Tony. Welcome. Hey, Gabby. Thanks for having me here. I'm so excited to record with you today. So we're going to go back to the start of your academic journey at Pasadena City College, and then you transferred to Cal State LA. So what inspired you to pick anthropology as a major? Yeah, so um, way back when, um, at the beginning, anthropology wasn't necessarily my main focus. Um, I actually moved to Los Angeles from Vegas to go to art school. Um, and so while I was, you know, trying to accomplish that, um, I decided to go to PCC, Pasadena City College, um, for my associates. And while I was there, um, is actually where I found anthropology. Um, and for a while, I really didn't really know if I wanted to pursue art as a career. Um, and so as I'm kind of going through this existential crisis of sorts, um, I'm taking these courses on Southwestern archaeology and a cultural course um, on religion um, because I thought they sounded interesting. And I just became completely enthralled with it, um, especially the archaeological component. Um, So as I'm getting to know my professors, thinking about which school I'm going to be transferred to, uh, transferring to, one of the archaeologists asked me since I was, you know, trained and art um, to illustrate some of the cultural materials that were in the process of being curated from one of his past excavations. And so as I'm doing this, I just, you know, become so overwhelmed with just how much a cultural object can tell you, um, tell you about a specific moment, an event, um, a person's identity, something about that society. And so it can be like emotional, I guess. Um, you're connecting with and talking to a people and with a culture from the past. And that's what initially really got me started in anthropology. Um, And that kind of blossomed as I transferred to California State University where I actually got the hands-on experience um, because what was really awesome about CSULA was that they had a very active program there, um, especially in the archeological wing. Um, They had three ongoing field schools, one in the Great Basin, another on the Channel Islands, um, and one in Mesoamerica. And I was able to do them all. And, um, you know, thanks, you know, for the support from my mentor, James Brady, 
and funding provided by Cal State LA, um, I was able to actually get that experience and really find my passion for anthropology, specifically archaeology. And so having also that art background really set me up for wanting to explore iconography and prehistoric art. And my heart has and always will be in Latin America. You know, it's where my family's from. And so I decided I wanted to focus my research in Mesoamerica, specifically in the Maya region. And that is where most of my work is focused on today. That's so wonderful. And especially that you get to continuously incorporate your art history background into your work now and your research questions. And um, I'm sure just in general, like all the places you're getting to travel to as an archeologist and see all these amazing sculptures. Once you decided to pursue a graduate career and you're now working on your PhD at UC Santa Barbara, what primarily influenced you to take your anthropological degree in down that route rather than, for example, working at a museum or doing something else that maybe didn't require getting your PhD? I don't know. There's something about being in the spaces um, that you're working in, um, not only the space and the landscapes, but also getting to know the people, um, you know, talking to the communities where you work um, is what I really love about the archaeological component and being there and actually, you know, getting your hands dirty and feeling it um, in that way. Um, in terms of influencing my path there, um, I would say um, a lot of it came from my mentors um, and a lot of the people that I met along the way. What's really cool about archaeology is that you're working with a team, so you're usually not alone. Um, sometimes that could be good, sometimes that could be bad, um, but you are constantly in communication and working as a unit um, as opposed to solo, and, um, and that has been you know, something that I really enjoy about it. Um, but yeah, my mentors um, essentially have helped a great deal in, you know, helping me find resources to be able to do the work that I do. Um, being a first generation college student, I didn't really get the experience or have, um, have the knowledge of how to basically navigate the resources available to me. And so my um, mentors, um, specifically James Brady from Cal State LA, and now my mentor, Dr. Gerardo Aldana, um, have both um, you know, really made it possible um, for me to take advantage of the opportunities that I have, um, not just by like, giving me things, but like helping me like navigate that path and um, helping me move forward. Yeah, that's so wonderful to hear. I think mentorship and collaboration in archaeology are just both such key, key things to creating great work and, you know, cohesive environment, because when we all like, you know, compile our work, it's just more information, more connection. And um, so I wanted to ask you, what are some of your other passions and favorite things to do when you do have time off? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometimes being a grad student feels like you don't really have time off, but <laughs> I, there are things that I love to do besides um, academic things. Um, well, one thing is I love to bake. Um, I'm not a cook whatsoever, but baking is totally something I can get behind. Um, and I don't know, I use it as kind of like a cathartic kind of soothing thing. Um, you know, it's if I'm having a bad day or can't sleep, which is often, um, it is not uncommon to find me baking something. So, um, so that's something that I'm definitely into. Other than that, um, I still like to dabble in the arts. Um, 
you know, do creative things. Um, I'm trying to get into more non-academic reading and writing um, and something that I've had in the back of my mind and waiting to start eventually um, is putting together a sort of choose your own adventure book um, that focuses on a dig in the Belizean jungle. Um, hint, some of the storylines will be based on true events. Um, and so, yeah, um, just trying to keep busy with those types of things, staying active. Um, I'm trying to take on running these days, which um, Good for you. <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with, <laughs> but it's getting better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much have a strictly hate relationship with it. I try though. <laughs> I try, but it's, it's not like my favorite thing to do. Um, I, it's definitely one of those things you have to push yourself to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your choose your own adventure book just sounds so cool. You mentioned it to me before and I, I can't, I mean, I just can't wait for that to be, for you to actually do that because I will be reading it and it will be just be so cool. That just sounds like such a fascinating idea and I hope that, you know, it comes to fruition someday. Yes, I will send you one one day. Yes, (laughs) yay, great. So as you were mentioning, you primarily work in Belize and you're studying topics like sacred geography, rituals, human and environmental relationships, and landscape utilization. But an interesting twist is that you work at a subterranean archaeological site. So could you explain how, you know, you particularly got interested in Uh, the type of the niche archaeology that you do work in in Mesoamerica? Yeah, um, so I never expected getting into subterranean archaeology. Um, To be honest, at first, caves really scared me. Um, It's a really eerie feeling in a cave, especially when you enter the dark zone, meaning when there's no natural light that can seep in. Um, I don't know, and sometimes it even feels like caves are like breathing. It's, it's, It's very... Yeah, just can be a very eerie space, Mm -hmm. but also beautiful. Um, Not to mention, there's a plethora of cave dwellers, um, like the tailless whip scorpions, which um, are basically harmless, but super scary looking. They kind of look like aliens. Um, So yeah, it definitely took me a minute to get used to um, working the space. And now I love it. I prefer to be underground um, instead of on the surface um, and sometimes working in the jungle that can be beneficial um, because there's no mosquitoes <laughs> inside mm. of caves. Um, anyway, my graduate mentor at Cal State LA, James Brady, who I kind of mentioned before, is one of the leading cave archaeologists in Mesoamerica. So working on projects with him while I was there, I was fortunate enough to get the training and experience working in both these large and small cave spaces. Um, so when I started my new graduate adventure here at UCSB, I wanted to delve deeper into the meaning of these spaces and their placement um, within the landscape, especially when they were not naturally created. So um, they're being they're man-made. So fast forward for the past four years, my graduate advisor, Dr. Gerardo Aldana, and I have been doing archaeological work at Mulchenwitz, um, which is an area within the ancient classic Maya site of La Milpa, um, which is in northwestern Belize. So Mulchenwitz consists of, um, you know, talking about where I work and how you see this interaction between, um, you know, this interaction between people and their landscapes. Mulchenwitz consists of two natural knolls or hills. So one um, is on the northern side, 
and one on the south. And the two knolls have been then further modified by terracing and the inclusion of man-made subterranean features called choltoons, which have been excavated into the earth. So small formal plazas and architectural features, including structures, platforms, and features associated with water are also present on constructed mounds. And they're somewhat mimicking the hilly terrain, um, you know, like mountains. And so what can this mean and why is it important to consider is one of the questions um, that Dr. Aldana and I um, have been um, kind of trying to tackle. Um, but before we can do that, um, you know, we have to take a moment to like kind of talk about the importance of caves, right? And not just natural caves, but both natural and artificial in Mesoamerica and their connection to what has been termed as the underworld, right? So caves and other sacred landscape features, um, you know, such as caves and like, such as even clefts and rocks and mountain voids, embody special powers controlled by earth and spiritual entities or um, ancestors. Caves were generally understood to have been places of ritual activity and even religious context. So at times even legitimizing power and or settlement boundaries. Um, Ethnohistory and ethnography have also documented that caves and mountains are prominent natural features in Maya sacred geography. And it makes sense in this cultural context because the natural world is not separate from culture, but rather thoroughly imbued by it and vice versa. They are essentially irrevocably intertwined. And so if you think about it, when we talk about ritual um, or what we deem as ritual, um, it's a sustaining force both socially and environmentally. It is practiced and felt in all social contexts. And so the pseudo-karstic environment at Molten Wheats does not give way to large, larger caves that one might think about in other parts of Belize or Guatemala. So small voids that have been culturally created can be just as sacred and powerful. And we actually see this in the ethnographic record. So um, looking at the ethnohistorical record, ethnographic record kind of lends to um, um, some of what we are trying to see is being mimicked in these these more um, smaller cave spaces, right, that are associated with um, certain types of architecture at the site of La Milpa, um, more predominantly at Mulchen Wheats. Um, so the inclusion of Tultines and Mulchen Wheats can perhaps be an example of something like that, um, you know, ancestor veneration happening at these um, pseudo kind of cave-like spaces where they don't really look like it. They could be little rock shelters or they can just be um, a well that has been dug, um, you know, can also serve as a cave-like space. Like any space where it's actually going into the earth can actually have that power. Um, and we are starting to see that this is happening at Mulchen Weeds from the cultural materials that we are finding, um, also kind of mapping out um, the Chultun network that we have there at Mulchen Wheats. Um, so there's something something more happening and um, besides it just being thought of as a, like an elite residential space. What is a, the approximate dimensions of a typical Chultun? I know you said that they do differ in their uh, um, structural components, but I was just curious, like how big are we talking for the Chultuns? Wow, um, so it depends. Um, so we have various types of Chultunes at, Mulch at Mulchen Wheats, um, where some are um, just one large chamber, um, which could be maybe 
like five meters by three meters. Um, or we have really large ones where we have multiple chambers, um, like three or four. And one Chultun in particular at Mulch and Weeds um, actually has three chambers and could, um, I guess, I don't want to say easily fit, but um, comfortably fit about 10 students inside, um, you know, sitting down. Um, and so they can be quite large. Um, and I guess like before too, like what I didn't really say in, in the work that I'm doing, um, you know, Chultuns are ubiquitous and they're found in a variety of social contexts throughout the Maya region. And um, at some sites, you know, you must search for them because they're not always present in large quantities or they have been buried under years and years of accumulated foliage and debris, right? So um, usually they have a lid um, and if they stayed capped um, and you're talking about hundreds of years um, go by, um, you're not going to see these automatically. Um, and so we don't really know the extent of, of how many are actually out there, but we do know that they're ubiquitous. Um, but for a long time, um, you know, these features have been written off as having purely utilitarian functions. The most common being that of storage, regardless of the context or even intensive investigations. Like sometimes Chultunes will be noted, but it will just be thought of having this utilitarian type of function. Um, and basically, you know, this is a common perspective taken from a lens that automatically designates Western notions of how people dominate the landscape to further enhance the social livelihood of the people. Um, but as I was saying, the material culture that we are encountering and the employment of, um, you know, using the ethno-historical, ethnographic record, um, using hieroglyphic text, et cetera, um, suggests that this is not the case. And especially at Mulchen Weeds, I'm not saying that it can serve as storage maybe in some spaces, but at Mulchen Weeds, it looks like it may have been more esoteric in nature. Um, and if you think about it, that would greatly change your understanding of Maya sacred geography um, when we think about how landscapes and caves are viewed as through that lens. Definitely. And then um, how are you locating these Choltoons? You were mentioning um, ground penetrating radar. Yeah, so most of the Choltoons that we have at Mulchen Weeds um, were uncapped, were found uncapped, oh, okay. actually. So either, um, so we're thinking about the karstic environment there is made out of limestone and limestone is an interesting, <laughs> an, an interesting um, type of geological feature, right? Like it's very porous. Mm -hmm. um, so over time, um, these capstones, which are made out of limestone as well, um, usually tend to fall in, especially if we're talking about all the elements of rain and wind, et cetera, um, anything that happens in the jungle. So they either fall in or they've been uncapped and gone through. There has been uh, looting that happens at Mulchen Weeds, or at Lamilpa at large, but like Mulchen Weeds too, we have a few temples uh, close by that have both been looted. Um, so you find them sometimes uncapped, the caps have fallen in, um, or um, you sometimes get lucky and find them capped, which is always really exciting. Um, but most of them have been uncapped. Um, we did try to employ ground, pen ground penetrating radar, GPR, um, to see if we can actually um, find voids um, underneath, um, underneath the ground um, so that you know, we're not just trying to 
guess where they would be found. So we, we, we have an idea, like we're trying to come up with a model that maybe can um, give us an inkling as to where they would be in terms of where we find them um, associated with architectural features. Um, but when you think about what happens when you excavate, you're essentially destroying the space, right? Um, you're destroying the context, even though it's telling you something. So instead of just randomly going out and being like, I think there might be a chultun there, um, we are trying to use these other um, methods in locating them. And one of them was a GPR, um, which actually, you know, it was hard employing GPR in the jungle because you're not on a flat surface and mm. there's a lot of, I'll just call the trees and rocks and everything booby traps, but there's just a lot of things that get in your way, right? And the thing with GPR is that it works best when you have like solid flat foundation. Mm. Um, so we were definitely using some awesome, um, just on the fly techniques to try to get <laughs> that to work correctly um, but we were able to locate um, some boys um, on top of platforms which is really interesting um, on top of platforms in the plaza groups we did not find a chultoon um, but we're trying to kind of think of other ways we might be able to utilize different methods to kind of do non-invasive um, archaeology so not just going in and you know excavating the entire area mm -hmm. trying to you know um, kind of keep it as much intact as possible. Yeah, that's great. And that's so fascinating. Um, so you're, you've mentioned, you know, all your work in the jungle. So I want to hear what are some of your favorite things about field work? And then on the other hand, what are some of the things you kind of learned from the hard way or field work fails, as I like to call them? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> there's definitely um, a lot of awesome things that happen in the field. Again, it's, it, it's a really good feeling to be there and be within that moment, um, experiencing the jungle, which um, can be a very lovely and very scary place, um, um, for sure. Um, but one of the things, and I think I mentioned this a little bit before, is kind of that camaraderie, that community um, that you get to experience. Um, what's really cool about um, where I work is is that we're we're run from. Um, a field, like kind of a field-based camp. Um, it's called the Program for Police Archaeological Research Project, which um, runs in conjunction with the University of Texas Austin, among other universities um, in the U.S. Um, and abroad. And so you're kind of in this space, it's almost like um, camping in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, we're run from this space in the jungle. You're meeting people from all over the United States. You're meeting researchers from um, a lot of different universities. And you kind of like create this community, um, you know, working together. Um, I like to, you know, be out there mentoring and teaching um, students. You know, I know a lot of people love the field work component of archaeology, but um, I really love, you know, teaching. Um, others um, about you know about um, my archaeology about where we are those types of things so yeah like field work to me it's it's always a fun place you meet a lot of great people a lot of great personalities um, you know and you learn from people as well um, so that's always great about the field work component um, and I guess negative things about the field. Um, well, there's a lot of things um, that, you know, could 
make it not as fun. Um, you know, we don't even need to look at it like that. Just even just like <laughs> guess, a funny, oh, yeah. a funny story. Just because I I don't want to give people the in the impression because we we love yeah. work. It's just also mm-hmm. because it's such a unique environment. There's some pretty yeah. funny things that happen that you know you got to learn from the hard way or just things that you won't do a second time. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was like you know at, I um, when you asked me that question, I just started rambling and then like. I was trying to think, I was just like, wait, what was the question? <laughs> no, you're okay. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um, sometimes I just go into that weird pilot mode. Um, yeah, so field work fails, I guess. I love field work. I love working in the jungle, but I would be lying if I said I have never um, questioned my decision to work in the jungle and or cried yeah. <laughs> while working in the jungle. Yeah. Um, I love it. I'm going back every year when I can, um, but uh, it does have some um, harder times. Um, for instance, um, you're basically trying to stay alive <laughs> every second while wandering through um, the jungle. Um, you know, we're taught do not hug the trees because they do hug back and in not a kind way. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's definitely um, the aspect of critters, um, you know, even the cutest caterpillar can have very nasty side effects to your skin <laughs> and to your well-being. Um, we are having to trek through um, small trails that we create um, to not be so invasive on the jungle as well. Um, so, you know, we're having to wear snake guards because we may come across fertilances or um, we're having to practice um, what we would do if we came across a jaguar or if we came across even a herd of peccaries, um, which was a big problem <laughs> uh, during the 2019 field season, um, which has a funny story. Um, yeah, so just like, you know, those types of things. And the most scariest thing to me are mosquitoes. Um, they definitely um, can bring you a world of pain. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder um, why <laughs> they're still around. Um, but I've definitely, um, I've had the battle with dengue fever. Um, I had a bot fly um, basically growing on the top of my head that needed to be extracted. Um, but they definitely weren't experienced and they're good stories to tell. Yeah. So in, in running the, the field school in Belize, what have been some of your favorite moments and your favorite experiences m- mentoring um, undergraduate students and helping them get that archaeological knowledge in non-pandemic times and eventually, you know, once, once you go back? Yeah, so, um, so I do run a field school um, with my advisor, Gerardo Adana, and um, for the 2017, 2018, and 2019 uh, field seasons, I actually recruited UCSB undergraduates um, that were interested in my studies or just wanted to get like, kind of like that hands-on experience to see if archaeology was something that they wanted to pursue. Um, and I somehow end up convincing them to follow me to the jungles of Belize um, and to leave their worlds behind to camp um, out in the jungle for a month with no cell phone service or TVs, et cetera, and to come tromp through the jungle um, and learn about Maya 
and their past and present world in a careful and ethical manner. And um, it's been such a rewarding experience. I've had students, um, you know, through the Promise Scholars Program and McNair Scholars come back and work on projects um, that they became interested in while in Belize um, and, you know, um, and have even presented their work at, at conferences um, and things like that. And so it's really awesome to kind of see that growth um, and, you know, and see people get inspired with, with that type of work. Um, what's really cool um, about the Program for Belize Archaeological Research Project is that you're also working amongst other universities. So students get the chance to talk to other professors, um, you know, maybe even get interested in graduate school and um, kind of make those connections there. Uh, they get to meet other students, other graduate students as well. Um, we don't just have archaeologists working out of the program for police field site. Um, it's also ecologists. Um, we had some great ecologists come from Puerto Rico last time. Um, we also have um, um, others, um, like there's a group that comes to, oh, we call them the Jaguar people, but they come oh. in, actually, yeah, they come in, um, they come and track, <laughs> they track the Jaguar uh, movement and, and track to see, um, you know, reproduction rates, et cetera, um, and those types of things. So there's a lot of different research. Uh, there's a lot of research that is going on through the camp. Um, so students definitely find their niche and, you know, if they want to do paleoethnobotanical analysis, um, we have a, a project paleo ethnobotanist um, that takes students on. Um, we have um, osteologists that work there um, that have been trained, um, you know, that are trained professionals. And so students can have the that osteological experience as well, um, if that's what they're more interested in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been really rewarding running in this field school and just seeing, um, seeing everybody, um, you know, um, get interested and succeed mm -hmm. in different ways and carry on projects after the fact. Definitely. That's definitely a special experience. And like you said, getting to build that community and having incorporating these people. And I'm sure you've also learned so much about um, indigenous culture in Belize and the life ways. And I'm sure you've learned so much about the jungle clearly. And I think that's a really special part of uh, traveling for research is getting to kind of immerse yourself and learn so much about another place and another physical location and time period in this case, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it, it that is also great. Like we do work with the community. Um, like we, we, there's a lot of collaboration with the community um, and working directly with um, the community there as well um, from the um, individuals that come and work with us out in the projects. Um, I like to, to call them archaeological technicians um, because they very much know way more than I do. Um, you know, when they come out and work with us, um, they know more about the jungle. I've learned so much um, about how to um, survive in, in, in a setting like the jungle. Um, but yeah, like we, there's a lot of collaboration being done, not only just on the student mentor type of level, but also with the community there. Yeah, that's great. And definitely involving the local community is so important in archaeological research. We talk about that all the time on the podcast. Um, yeah. So 
we're going to switch gears a little bit into the next um, thing I want to talk about, which is the work that you did in conjunction with Dr. Amber Vanderbarker and other UCSB graduate students, Hugh Raddy and Caitlin Brown, where um, you all produced various um, papers and um, research on looking at gender and race in the discipline of archaeology and some, what, of some, what, what some of the predominant trends are. So yeah. in specific, you published a paper from this study. Can you kind of summarize your research and then maybe discuss some of the ways you think we can help rectify this gender disparity in uh, academia? Yeah, so um, again, um, you know, we, we, were, we were working with uh, quantitative and qualitative survey data collected from the Society of California Archaeology Membership List. Um, and we concluded that sexual harassment um, a lack of female and minority mentors, pay inequity and gender-based disparities in publishing are not only prevalent and present in the academic realm, but also in the cultural resource management or CRM job sector, um, where roughly 70% of women archaeology graduate students in California end up choosing careers in. So what's, you know, what's going on, right? Um, so my research um, for the project focused on gender inequity um, in the academy but mostly in the realm of CRM and the survey responses show that disparities exist and persist in both sectors. Uh, what was interesting however is that while the men and women who responded to the survey generally didn't perceive significant gender inequity, the data shows it's still present and in fact have taken more subtle forms of discrimination um, in the forms such as um, gendered task assignments and gendered segregated workplaces. Um, so for example, uh, one of the responses that was repeated by most respondents was that um, women were given more clerical tasks while men were handed more field-oriented physical tasks or more women were being told that they were given a specific clerical task because of being perceived as not being able to do a more physically demanding type of duty. And that is what the demographics were telling us as well. Um, respondents reported more men in the field doing more field-oriented duties, while more women were in office spaces, um, writing reports, taking notes, etc. which is not saying those things aren't important, it's just it's creating this segregated space, right? Um, and folks have feelings about this. Um, we also saw this sentiment of subtle gender discrimination um, echoed in areas such as differential pay rate, professional ranking, and professional advancement within the CRM job sector. Because I think it's important, um, you know, because while the research mostly like focused on women in the field of archeology, span it is incredibly important to note that re respondents who identified as people of color and or LGBTQ plus expressed even higher instances of harassment and gender inequity in all categories. And so um, definitely there's inequity happening, um, you know, across all, um, all, all, across many different, mm -hmm. um, you know, levels um, that deal with race, ethnicity, non-normative gender identity, and sexuality. And, and I think that's something that we also need to look at and we need to be more vocal about um, because, um, yeah, if, you know, reading, you know, any of the other papers that also focus on, like, harassment, it's, it's very prevalent and, and it needs to end. Um, and so, you know, given the political and social climate that we are currently experiencing, 
experiencing, it is important to have conversations that continue to expose inequities that exist in all social structures, um, not just within the realm of archaeology, California archaeology, right? Um, it's in all social structures. And it's also important to maintain a conversation with, um, you know, underrepresented peoples in the discipline who've been affected by these inequities. So, um, yeah. Definitely. It's definitely important to keep bringing that to the attention of the public and then working on rectifying those disparities. For sure. And, and you know, and, and it, it's still, it's important to also note that there have been a lot of things that have been, um, that have been, exp there's been, um, how do you want to say, um, there's been a lot of developments like within the academic realm within, you know, the CRM job sector, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it needs to be more, yeah, um, I don't want to, yeah, still want to give credit that there mm -hmm. has been, um, you know, major changes, um, but it's still there. And, and, and as we're seeing, it's kind of taking this different, um, it's almost like, what is it called? Like, um, veiled, um, discrimination almost, right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like you sometimes don't see it or it's so subconscious, um, but it's there. Yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. I'm really glad that that was something that you guys were, you know, bringing to the to the front of research and is definitely something that needs to continue to be researched. I know um, Dr. Vanderwerker is continuing to do research on um, how many like like um, academic positions females versus males are receiving and such she talked about that on her episode of the podcast if our listeners want to check that out we had her on um maybe wow it's probably like a month back now it's crazy so many episodes i have this is that your episode is going to be episode 22 which that's, isn't that cow. crazy that's i know awesome congrats <laughs> i was listening to like a podcast that i like to listen to and they were like this is our 10th episode. Like, thank you so much. And I was like, wow, I, I was like 10 episodes. That was a while ago. Dang. I didn't even, I didn't even like notice. I didn't even like notice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and talking with all of our listeners. We'll make sure to have you, you know, your work linked below so people can check it out if they're interested. And, um, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Thank you, Gabby. I appreciate it. <laughs>